You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Thomas Berceau, President of the National Lipid Association, and I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Larry Kaskill and presented by the National Lipid Association. Risk stratification has served for many years as one of the most prominent tools in our efforts to lower the incidence of cardiovascular disease. But our tools are by no means perfect, and thus there's room for improvement. So how do we move past the limitations of current biomarkers, imaging, and genetic tests, enhancing our capacity to perform more accurate risk assessments? My guest today is Dr. Vijay Nambi, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Atherosclerosis and Vascular Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, and he's also a staff physician at Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in Houston, Texas. Dr. Nambi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. Kaskill, for having me. Well, let's start a little bit about risk stratification. Can you tell the listeners what it really is and why it's so important? Well, you know, anything we do in medicine to an extent, it depends on the perceived risk that a patient has. And it's extremely important in prevention of cardiovascular disease to identify individuals who are at high risk so that you can institute preventive therapies in order to prevent the feared complications of these, including you know, myocardial infarctions or strokes and what have you. So that lies in the crux of risk stratification for coronary heart disease. You know, traditionally, we use the traditional risk factors such as blood pressure, you know, your HDL cholesterol, and presence or absence of diabetes, and use all of these together to evaluate what a 10-year risk estimate may be. And then people are classified as you know, low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk, and preventive therapies can be targeted based on that. Well, I know that some doctors now are trying to popularize the concept of a lifetime risk. What is that? This is actually a very important concept and a thing that has been developing over the last many years. What we have to understand is, you know, when we talk about this traditional way of risk stratification where we use the Framingham risk and classify individuals into low, intermediate, or high risk, what we're actually looking at is a 10-year risk. I mean, to a 35- or 40-year-old person, you know, a 10-year risk may not mean the same thing as what his or her lifetime risk of having an event is. So lifetime risk is something, you know, which we forecast way into the future as far as that goes. This concept has been popularized by Don Lloyd-Jones out of Chicago, and they have been coming up with very interesting and nice data as far as that goes. You know, my experience has been it's very hard to predict things, especially when it comes to the future. (laughs) Absolutely. Isn't that true? I mean, the thing is, you know, our tools are limited. For example, despite our best risk stratification efforts that we have right now, which is the Framingham Risk Score, and the Framingham Risk Score has been the bedrock of our uh, ability to predict risk and what we use on a routine basis. But it's very interesting to note that the majority of our coronary events happen in the people who are thought to be low and intermediate in risk. Personally, I think it's time to let Framingham kind of die a slow death. It's no better than a coin toss in my practice in the real world. If I do a Framingham risk on someone and then I scan either an artery or some sort of test, it's wrong half of the time. I mean, I wouldn't go that far in saying that the Framingham risk score shouldn't be used. I think it still has its role. I think it's a very good initial screen to see people who are at very low risk and, you know, people who are at very high risk. The thing is, if a person is very high risk by Framingham risk score, you know, I don't think you need anything else further to go after uh, risk modification for them. Because age being a part of the Framingham risk score, you know, your cigarette smoking and things which are absolutely critical. I think once a person is classified as high risk, I think moving forward and 
treating them aggressively is what needs to be done. In the extremely low-risk individuals, those individuals, again, you know, adding another test or what have you does not seem to make a big difference. In other words, they don't go to a high-risk group. But who the low-risk group is, you know, that is being debated at this point of time. Right now, the way uh, NCEP and ATP3 uh, classify low-risk as is they say it's if you're 0 to 10% over a 10-year risk or less than 1% per year, you would be considered as low-risk. But a lot of data is starting to emerge as, you know, in that low-risk group, there are two groups groups even within that. And you can clearly see that people who are, you know, 0 to 5% and 5 to 10%, there's a big difference in what their 10, 15-year event rates is, event rates are. And we, in fact, looked at in the ARIC study, and we presented this at the American Heart Association, where people in the 5 to 10% risk group seem to have, you know, a lot more events compared to people in the 0 to 5% risk group. And interestingly, there was another paper that was just recently out in circulation, which actually looked at people who were low risk and looked at their lifetime risk. What they found was they found there were two groups within that. 50% of the people or approximately 50% of the people had a low lifetime risk, while another 50% of them had a high lifetime risk. And interestingly, people who had the higher lifetime risk were the ones who had subclinical atherosclerosis by coronary artery calcium score or, you know, intermediate thickness. It seems to me that if you do enough tests, you'll be able to change the stratification for an individual because you'll eventually find something. And so it seems like we as a society want to create more patients. You know, I know obviously you're going to say, no, we want to really <laughs> figure out who's really at risk, but it turns out that we are creating patients out of everybody. And I have a little issue with that. I think that's an important aspect of it in the sense we should not be over-treating people. But therein also lies the big paradox, the problem with prevention. I mean, prevention is something you take, you take somebody who's feeling completely well and normal, and you tell them, well, you have a risk of, you know, developing A, B, C, and D over the next 20, 30 years. So I think we should institute these therapies and things like that so that we prevent that. Now, the other thing which we have to think about in this is, you know, who do we call as normal? So a person with an LDL cholesterol of 170 or 180, is he normal? normal or is he not? See, those are the kind of things that you have to judge. And that's where, you know, risk stratification would help because a person with an LDL cholesterol of 150 who is low risk and a 25 or 30 year old right now we call is normal. But is that LDL cholesterol really normal? That's the question that, you know, begs to be answered, especially in light of, you know, recent data such as the Jupiter study, especially in light of data that we know that when you're born, our LDL cholesterol is, you know, maybe in the 50s to 60, 70 range. So, you know, what is considered normal is where the paradigm or the parameters are shifting, you know, with time. And that's what has to be the focus on this. Rather than creating more patients in whom we're just going to put statins on everybody, identifying the right person is important. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill, your host. Our guest is Dr. Vijay Nambi, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Atherosclerosis and Vascular Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Nambi is also a staff physician at Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in Houston, Texas, and we're talking about risk stratification. Doctor, you brought up the Jupiter trial, and I'm glad you did because many of these people would have been considered normal just by their LDLs. They were 130 or below. Exactly. And then we add on this other test, the CRP, and determine, oh, my God, they're at high risk. Correct. And so we treated many people in that study. And if you dissect out the data, at the end of the day, there were six people who had fatal heart attacks in the placebo group, and there were nine people who had fatal heart attacks in the Crestor group, although that wasn't in the manuscript. 
So how do you answer that, that, okay, so here we are trying to prevent people from dying of heart disease because we found a new risk factor, CRP, but yet more people died on treatment than off treatment from a heart attack. One of the problems with the Jupiter study was the length of follow-up. So we don't know if this was projected to a later time point, you know, if we would have started seeing more of the cardiac death that we talked about. And remember, you were starting with a bunch of people who are low risk. If you take a look at the Jupiter study, 50% of the people had, you know, a risk of less than 10%, and 50% had a risk of more than 10%. So to say Jupiter only included low risk patients, it actually included a spectrum of people, which included 50% of people who would be considered low risk right now, and another 50% of people who had a 10-year risk of greater than 10%. So there was a spectrum of people. The main criteria was obviously the low LDL and the presence of high C-reactive protein. So I think one of the things was, you know, Jupiter, the follow-up was a little bit short. So even if you consider all of that together, the number of events you expected in these people would not have been that high. And especially when we're talking about events for cardiovascular disease, we're looking for incident CHD and fatal CHD and, you know, there was stroke, there were a bunch of other events that we look at always. So overall, when we look at it and when we look at other therapies that are normally considered in practice of cardiovascular medicine, we always look at the major adverse cardiovascular events and that's kind of what Jupiter went after. So I think overall, compared to what the other therapies, you know, that are being looked at and being evaluated goes, the statin therapy did well. Whether it's cost-effective or not, especially for example, what you're pointing out, the number of fatal CHDs and things like that, that will obviously need to be evaluated. But, you know, from prevention of major adverse cardiovascular events, the statin did its job there. Well, you know, you said that we didn't let the trial go long enough, but they stopped it. And, you know, usually you stop a trial when it's killing patients. In this trial, it supposedly wasn't killing people, yet they stopped it. And I'm suspect of why they stopped it. And now we don't have long-term data. Obviously, I do not know why they stopped it. I can see why they stopped it as far as, you know, the overall benefit with it. If you talk to statisticians and folks, they always say, you know, if there's an indication of harm, you definitely need to stop it. If there's an indication of benefit, maybe by not stopping the trial, perhaps several people who could benefit from the therapy are unjustly not being given that. So there are two arguments to it. But I agree with you. It would have been nice to see a little bit longer-term data. And we actually are looking at the ARIC study right now and looking at dissecting it by LDL and CRP and seeing how the event rates would work out over a longer term of follow-up. And hopefully we'll have data to present on that pretty soon. So let's move on from Jupiter down to Earth and talk about our genes. There's now genetic testing that we can do. There's the decode MI test that you can get from Iceland if they're still in business. You know, how does that play in? If you get one of those tests and it says you're at high risk of having a heart attack, do you go with that? And does that automatically put you into a high-risk category for life? So I think if you take a look at, you know, markers associated with risk, there are probably, you know, between a few hundred of them that are published every year saying it's either this biomarker or this genetic marker or something that's associated with risk. Now, you know, that obviously leaves clinicians as, you know, the question of how to use these markers. I think an important construct to look at would be how CRP was evaluated as far as being useful for predicting additional risk, like the Reynolds risk score, where you add this marker to traditional risk factors and see if it helps, you know, move people up lower categories of risk and see if it does better than traditional risk factors. The one genetic marker which obviously has been talked about the most has been the chromosome 9P21 gene. 
This was looked at by Ritker and group, and they found that in women, it did not seem to make a major difference as far as risk prediction goes. We looked at this marker in the ADDIC study, and uh, we presented this data in the American Heart Association. And in our group, which included both men and women, it seemed to modestly improve risk prediction. I think the way this has to evolve down the future is identify, you know, there's a whole host of, you know, genetic studies that are going on, genome and association studies and candidate gene studies. With time, hopefully when we understand a little bit more and identify the most important genes, we can hopefully develop a genetic risk score of some sort, wherein you have a few SNPs, which are associated with CHD, add them to your traditional risk scores and see if that improves risk prediction. So that is what will have to evolve down the line, because clearly, again, you know, whatever the traditional risk factors tell you, there are quite a few people who, you know, have a family history of heart disease, who have, you know, young folks who end up having an acute myocardial infarction without any of the traditional risk factors. So those are kind of the situations wherein your genetic markers could be of value to you down the line. I don't think it's ready for prime time as yet, but once we identify these markers down the line, it may be of value in risk stratification. On my iPhone today, I got a report from the Wall Street Journal that untreated depression is now a new recognized risk factor for the development of heart disease. So it seems that every week there's a new risk factor, and I'd like to just say that a risk factor does not necessarily translate into cause. All it means is there's a correlation. And so, you know, when we talk about risk factors, it sounds like if you have these risk factors, oh my God, you're in trouble, you've got the disease. It's an absolutely important point. And the thing that we have to make a distinction about is a risk marker and a risk factor. A risk factor is something that has to be involved causally in the pathway of disease. A risk marker may just mark the presence or presence of the disease. For example, the classic thing, you know, which we learn in medical school is about development of goiters and the fact that they developed in people who were in mountainous regions. And then later on, they just found out the salt there just lacked iodine, and that's why people developed goiters. So, you know, the mountain wasn't the risk factor there. It was just a marker of people who had goiters. So similarly, in these things, we have to make a distinction between a risk marker and a risk factor, and that's what is important. And like you pointed out, there's going to be, you know, tons of newer biomarkers or, you know, gene products that have shown correlation and association with disease, but adding it to these things and actually showing that they actually improve risk prediction is what will be needed before you consider them for risk stratification. Dr. Nambi, thank you very much for talking with me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. My guest was Dr. Vijay Nambi, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the section of Atherosclerosis and Vascular Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. And you've been listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.